Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. I'm Ben Jackson. We've seen so much this year. The January 6th committee hearings, the midterm elections, the Iranian uprising, passage of the first significant gun violence legislation in decades, the continuing pandemic, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and so much more. As we do every year, we're using our final episode to look back on just a few of the moments from our show that helped define 2022. Our first guest today is going to be Anna Gifty Opoku Ajaman. Anna is a researcher, a graduate student at Harvard University, and editor of the book The Black Agenda. Alyssa discussed with her the importance of paying attention to black experts in fields which affect black Americans. Republican Glenn Youngkin's closing message to Virginia voters has almost singularly focused on weaponizing race, stoking hysteria over the coded boogeyman of critical race theory, which is not currently taught in any Virginia public school. Leave it to the state of Florida to take anything to the next level. Florida Senate Education Committee just passed a bill called Individual Freedom that would prohibit schools and private businesses from making white people feel uncomfortable when teaching or training about historic racism. And now that we're all on the same page, we just can focus on making sure that everybody is taking action, you know, effective action, not just black squares on Instagram. How do we solve racism? Well, it appears that following the death of George Floyd, white people had the answer. Finally, some uploaded Black Lives Matter posts here and there. Some added BLM and a black face emoji to their bios. Hi, my name is Anna Gifty of Fogo Ajman. I am the editor of the Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Broken System which is out everywhere now. And the statement I'm gonna share is ignoring black experts doesn't make you better as an individual organization or institution. Sorry, not sorry. So tell us about the book and tell us about why it's important, why you wanted to put this book together. Absolutely. So the Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Broken System is a essay collection, first and foremost, that brings together 35 Black experts to talk about a number of different policy areas. This is actually the first book of its kind. Trust me, I checked. The only, I would say the closest thing to it is probably something called Black Genius, which featured Spike Lee, like early 2000s, maybe late 1990s. But that book actually has been out of print, it seems, for quite some time. So this is really the first book to bring Black folks who are in these policy research areas, as well as activists, to sort of tell us what do we do next. And so the book in and of itself being an important piece of work is really because Black folks have been excluded from the mainstream and public discourse. So I decided to raise my hand and ask a question. Do Black experts matter? While the answer is obvious, yes, of course Black experts matter. Nearly everyone in the mainstream prior to the racial justice protests in the summer of 2020, would have you believe otherwise. The glaring omission of Black experts is so commonplace across Western society that it's become normalized. It's really hard to find, quote-unquote, Black experts who can weigh in on some of these issues. And so this book came together really because I was a bit visible in my own space in economics, and I saw that people were reaching out to me, and I said, I'm cool giving you, like, my two cents on Biden, but at the end of the day, I'm not really the best person to talk to. 
So essentially, that's really what inspired the book. The fact that they were missing from the mainstream and the fact that people were reaching out to me. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that might seem just painfully basic, but apparently they still need to be asked because a lot of people don't seem to understand. Why is it important to follow the lead of Black experts on issues that disproportionately affect Black people? I like to put it like this. The best outcome for Black people is a better outcome for everyone else. So what do I mean by that? If you think about marginalized identities, people who are facing burdens across any aspect of society, almost always they are Black or Brown. And so if you think about individuals who are coming up with solutions in those communities, not only are they addressing the problems in their communities, but largely they are thinking about the broader impacts on other communities as well. So I'll give you a very clear example about this. So I was actually in fifth grade when this happened, the financial crisis of 2008, just to give you a sense of my age. A lot of people don't know that Black economists were actually ringing the alarm about what was going to happen with the financial crisis back in like 2006, 2007. They were saying, look, Black communities are facing an obscene amount of foreclosures. There's predatory loaning happening in these communities. What are we going to do about it? And so the economic entities at the time largely ignored Black economists. And eventually we got 2008. So a lot of times what I like to tell people is that based on the work that we've seen here in the book and elsewhere, Black communities oftentimes when they're going through a crisis are a precursor to what's going to happen to the country overall. And so it's really, really important that when you're thinking about solutions from Black communities or with respect to Black communities, that you have Black experts at the helm of those solutions. Okay. And second, why have we in America not been following the lead of Black experts? Racism. That's it. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's exactly why I asked that question, because I, I knew that answer and I wanted you to say it out loud. It really is incredible how disconnected we are, and yet we pretend to be so righteous in our anti-racism, and yet it feels like we can't allow room even for Black leaders to lead without some sort of criticism from white. Not only, by the way, not it's not only people within communities, it's people within the activist community and advocacy groups. And these are people who seemingly are projecting this ideal of intersectionality, and yet they don't understand the concept of just stepping back and letting our Black leaders lead. To me, there's never been a moment in American history when we have allowed that to its full potential, and we've still seen amazing things from Black leaders. Yeah. I would say that it really boils down to humility. You think you're so prideful enough to like have a say on every single issue? You've missed it, right? This idea of Black people can only talk about Black issues, but Black issues are separate from societal issues. There's a sense of entitlement there, right? Like you're not taking a step back and looking at the fuller picture. And perhaps it's because you're afraid of what you're going to see. When you step back and you give Black people room to devolve their expertise and to devolve what they understand about the world, you're afraid that you're going to get implicated. My whole point around that is at the end of the day, you have to be humble enough to recognize that there are some blind spots you have, and that informs your worldview and how you look at the different issues that you're hoping to address as an activist or as an advocate. And so it's absolutely important that you center the Black folks in your respective space. There's a non-binary creative at the end of the climate chapter called Ari Linton Smith, who talks about how as a Black queer creative, in sustainability, in the environmental space, you're facing a completely different world than your white counterpart. While you're out here advocating for mutual aid because you need to live and pay rent, the white counterpart is getting deals from Patagonia. Not saying Patagonia is doing that. I'm just saying as an example, right? It's night and day. And we see this empirically with even how TikTok creators are treated based off of race and how the algorithm works. This idea of a racist system, it's the air we breathe. And so until we address that the air we breathe is poisonous, we're all going to be subjected to the same sort of harms that it can um, possess. I'm so happy you mentioned the algorithm because to me, that is the most dangerous part of society right now. That to me is the most horrifying 
part of where we are in every aspect, whether it be misinformation, whether it be young girls looking at things that are beauty that is totally unattainable. We are so set in our silos because of these algorithms. And to me, that is a terrifying part of it. In your introduction of the book, you write, reading this book or even implementing the solutions in this book will neither solve racism nor excuse the bigotry that lines the pockets of the most powerful. Should individuals and institutions read, reflect, and adopt these ideas? Of course. Is this audiobook justifying the avoidance of other bold and transformative ideas beyond the collection? Absolutely not. This audiobook is not a short-lived listen to pacify guilt. This is about a way forward, one that includes us all. Next, we'll look back at an episode from earlier this year with our friend Nina Jankowicz. Nina is a disinformation expert and also a Russia and Ukraine expert who joined us shortly after the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine to discuss both her new book, How to Be a Woman Online, and the terrible toll and what to expect from that war. Joining us to talk about this, it's something I experience personally, something that when I show my friends the messages, they can't believe that somebody would write something like that. And I think what's probably partially startling about this is that it does become routine. I'm, I am sort of used to it. Even though we were receiving death threats, they didn't say, we're coming to the Benassis to kill them tonight. And, and that's, they want something that they can act on right away. They need a crime to have been committed. That's correct. I logged into my social media and I got thousands of messages telling me that I'm never going to be able to have kids, I hope my period hurts, um, just things that aren't even associated with football. And I, feel, I want to share this with, with the people out there because I don't want anybody to be in the situation that I was in. Online misogyny is a global gender rights tragedy and it is imperative that it ends. My name is Nina Jankowicz and I'm helping women navigate abuse and harassment online. Sorry, not sorry. You're a Russia and Ukraine expert and have spent significant time in both countries. And we're just now getting a complete picture of the horrible destruction and civilian death toll in that country. Can you tell us some of what your thoughts are about what's happening there? Yeah, it's been a really difficult couple of weeks since the invasion began. Ukraine is basically a country I think of as my second home. I spent a year advising the Ministry of Foreign Affairs there under the auspices of a Fulbright Fellowship. and got a lot of close friends who are still in Ukraine because they couldn't imagine leaving. And I think that is such a an important thing for Americans to grapple with, right? If we were forced to make that choice, what would we do? And I think we've seen such incredible bravery from the Ukrainian people over the past couple of weeks in the onslaught of this horrible invasion. I think it's really interesting from an informational perspective what has happened and how Ukraine and frankly, its Western allies have been able to push back against Russia in a way that in 2014, when the first Russian invasion happened, we were completely taken aback, completely unaware of how to push back. And I think right now, I would say that we're doing a pretty good job. And in particular, President Zelensky is doing an excellent job in keeping Ukraine centered in like Western consciousness, Western news coverage, and also really providing kind of a center of gravity around which his people can really mount a response. And it's a very human face of leadership that a lot of people, I think, didn't expect from him. You know, I was back in Ukraine in 2019 covering the presidential election that he was elected in. And Back then, everybody was like, oh, he's just like a, he's a comedian, like he's Ukraine's Trump. And I knew then that couldn't be farther from the truth because I went and I saw him perform. And actually, as, as a performer, I'm sure you've seen this in certain leaders as well. There's an element to the best politicians of being able to connect with people on that very emotional and human level. And I went and saw a performance that he did as part of his campaign where he was doing like Saturday Night Live-esque sketch comedy. And then he sang a song at the end of the show about loving his country, despite all of its flaws. And it was very incisive about the things that really mattered to Ukrainians that they wanted to fix in their country. And that's when I was like, I think this guy's got something. And, and since then, he's navigated a lot of crises, impeachment, the shoot down, the accidental shoot down of the Ukrainian airliner and Iranian airspace at the beginning of 2019. 
he's navigated them pretty adeptly. And now we see him on the international stage and he's everybody's crush. And it's because of that emotional human appeal and the power of telling a good story in the face of this absolute nonsense that Russia's putting out there. I just think it's fascinating. And so that's been really hopeful for me. And I think also Ukraine has showed itself to be a really inspirational country where most people couldn't find it on the map before. And now everyone really cares about it. And so in that way, I really think Ukraine has already set itself on the path to victory because it's put itself on the side of good. I'm hopeful about what's going to happen. I think obviously we're seeing these horrible, heartbreaking images come out from towns like Bucha and Irpin. And I think the world is indignant about that. We're not going to stand for that from Russia. And Ukraine certainly isn't going to stand for it. And it might be a long, drawn out conflict, but I do believe in my heart of hearts that Ukraine is on the right side of history and is going to come out victorious. Victorious. What does that mean? How do you think this ends? It seems like from all reports, Putin is both increasingly isolated and seemingly increasingly intent on absolutely leveling and destroying Ukraine. So how does it end? Yeah, I mean, well, now Putin is refocusing his military on the east of the country. And what I worry about is that because that's farther away from Western borders, we're going to say, okay, out of sight, out of mind. That can't happen, first of all, because that region has already withstood so much over the past eight years. 14,000 people died before this re-invasion of Ukraine in February. So we have to keep that in mind. But I think Ukraine is frankly just going to stand up to the test of time. And it's going to force Putin to continue to feed troops and equipment into what is essentially a meat grinder right now. And my hope is that the Russian people are not going to stand for that. They didn't stand for it in Afghanistan. They were not happy about it when Putin did this in Chechnya. I'm a little worried about the informational blockade that Putin has put up in Russia since then. So it's important. And I know you've got a lot of friends who are influencers and celebrities who listen to your podcast. It's important that they speak out, that you speak out because you've got followers, you've got fans in Russia and that informational blockade doesn't really apply to celebrities and to celebrity culture. And I think that's really interesting. We saw Lady Gaga, Arnold Schwarzenegger, making direct appeals to the Russian people. Hello, everybody. And thank you for sharing your time with me. I'm sending this message to various different channels to reach my dear Russian friends and the Russian soldiers serving in Ukraine. I'm speaking to you today because there are things that are going on in the world that are being kept from you terrible things that you should know about. The power is in their hands now to decide what happens with Putin. And I think either, you know, we see a, an uprising potentially from the Russian people, or at some point they just get tired of their sons and husbands going off to die in war and never hearing from them again. And, uh, and frankly, that's what's happening. They're just leaving, abandoning these poor men over there. And the Ukrainians are the ones who are informing their families that they're either killed in action or, or injured in prisoners of war now. And that's not going to, long term, I don't see how that can work for the Russian people. They can't cut off that much information. And we've already seen some cracks start to show. So that's my hope that the information onslaught toward Russia can bring about some change politically. It might take a while. And I think Ukraine has said, you know, we're going to defend to the last brick, to the last person. We're going to we're going to rebuild as much as it takes. And I think they've got good allies in the U.S. and other Western governments who are going to make that happen when the time comes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Next, we'll look back at Alyssa's interview with Wajahat Ali. Wajahat is a writer and comedian and author of the new book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. 
Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. We are the most religiously diverse communities in America, 30% African-American, 25% South Asian, 20% Arab, and the rest miscellaneous. Until recently, acts of racism were usually undocumented in private. Well, now with social media and camera phones, one comment can instantly blow up online. So now the Republicans are kind of going back to the old historical playbook of trying to deprive the disenfranchised uh, some voters, especially black voters who they think will be voting Democratic. Hey everyone, I'm Mujahat Ali, and I'm here to dismantle white supremacy. As Thanos said, aim for the head. Sorry, not sorry. My name is Wajahat Lee. I was born and raised in the Bay Area, California, Fremontistan to be exact, to two Pakistani Muslim immigrant parents who thought it'd be awesome to name me Wajahat, so I'd blend. And they also thought it'd be awesome not to teach me English, even though I was born and raised in America, because who needs English? Old school immigrant parents who just dropped me off at Child's Hideaway Preschool with three phrases of English, which was shut up, because my mom used to say shut up, idiot. Because my mother used to follow shut up with idiot. And you you know me. We grew up in the 80s. Remember the Campbell Soup commercial? Uh-oh, SpaghettiO? Of course. I used to say, uh-oh, SpaghettiO. That's all I knew. And the awkward brown token Muslim kid who used to wear husky pants, who spoke no English, but ended up graduating with an English major from UC Berkeley, became a lawyer, and married the high school varsity cheerleader, married way up. So I love America. It's a great country. Wow, you did good. You open your book much like you open this interview. Humor is obviously a big part of your life, but in the beginning of your book, you start with this section of responding to some really vile messages that you've received, full of racism, Islamophobia, and just lots of terrible spelling. But instead of responding in kind, you write some very very funny replies. Why did you, why do you choose to use humor instead of anger? So everyone processes the sad uh, reality of your country not wanting you or loving a country that doesn't love you back in different ways. And I think rage is fine. It's a righteous rage. And who gets to have rage in this country? But rage and anger in itself are privileged emotions. Uh, men, white men, get praised for being real and speaking from the hip and telling it like it is and being mad as hell and not taking it anymore. A woman does it, she's bossy. A black man does it, he's being uppity. That's why Barack Hussein Obama always had to be chill and calm and cool. Brown man does it, he's extreme. But just my personality is you can either laugh or you can cry. I'm not a crier, so I laugh. I think it allows me to enjoy the dark humor of it all. But I think humor, if used strategically, can also be used to dismantle your opponent and sometimes can be used to show the idiocy and the silliness and hypocrisy of hate and racism. And so you mentioned the opening of my book. I had a very strange, but different take on it. Instead of doing the usual opening, I begin this book listing, I think about seven lovely, generous emails from my many fans that I'm sure that you get all the time. They give me unsolicited recommendations to go back to where I came from and go fuck a goat or a camel. And then instead I said, let me respond. And so I show you my responses, which are rooted, I think, in some dry humor, which hopefully booby trap and dismantle their idiocy and only enrage them further. Are you on TikTok? I'm not on the TikTok yet. I, I, I because. See, that's what the TikTok is great to have those moments where someone writes something horrible to you and you can pin it on the top of your video and actually respond. And those are the videos, oddly enough, get the most views. I think you'd be brilliant at the TikTok. See, I think like, you and I get lovely emails. I don't think people realize the type of barrage of hate that we get on a daily basis and the type of impact it has on people. Right? Everyone says, well, I'm tough until they get it. But we're human beings. We're sensitive, emotional creatures. And if people tell you each day, you suck, you're ugly, go back, you piece of shit, you're a Muslim, you're a terrorist. It wears people down. And so I'm in this, I think like you, for the long fight. And I don't want to be a martyr. I think oftentimes people in this environment they're in, we judge success through martyrdom. Look how many arrows I have. Look how I suffer for you. And look, I'm going to die at the age of 43. I want to reverse that. I'm like, I don't want you to suffer and die. I want you to have a long, healthy, joyful life. That to me is a response. That to me is a reaction. That to me is success. These guys want to bring us down. And the best revenge is success. And sometimes the best revenge, and going off of your first question is, and maybe people will be old enough to get this reference. 
is to be like Bugs Bunny and not Daffy Duck. Oftentimes we're like Daffy Duck, right? Because we get angry and the anvil falls on our head and we sweat. But Bugs Bunny, look, Elmer Fudd's after Bugs Bunny, Yosemite Sam's after Bugs Bunny, they're chasing him. But Bugs Bunny uses their trap against them, uses some humor, kisses them instead, and always at the end of the episode, he gets the carrot. What do you think it says about people in this country, people in America, that they just feel free to send messages like that? First of all, social media, the anonymity of social media has inspired all of our worst demons to emerge because it's much easier for me to say something like, I don't know you, but you're a celebrity. And now we know each other. We've known each other for a while, but you're a celebrity. So it's much easier. Like, this is common. Oh, I hate Alyssa Milano. And then someone says, have you actually ever met her? Oh, no, I've never met her. Like, people say this all the time against those people who are public figures. Do you really hate her? Have you ever met her? You cease being a human being. You become flattened. And what social media has done has flattened all of us. We're not complex humans. All we are are our last tweets or our last take or our last mistakes. So we become essentialized by that one trait. And that gives people the invisibility or hiding behind a screen or monitor gives people the type of empowerment to otherwise say things they would never say. I don't know about you, but I've met some of my trolls in real life. She has become Britain's most high-profile victim of cyberbullying. 14-year-old Hannah Smith, driven to take her own life after a vicious campaign of online hate messages. I read these messages and it made me so, so angry that I just thought, who, who could put my little girl through that? As the family prepare for Hannah's funeral, her sister has been targeted by more abuse on the internet. 95% of the time, the mousiest, most quiet people on earth. I always say that, like, I've never, with all of the vitriol that I get online, I've never been in a situation in person where people are, like, yelling obscenities at me. And I think a lot of it is, it's not only the keyboard warriors, but also it's like because of social media, there's an ownership and an accessibility that never really happened before. When I used to get hate before social media, people had to go out of their way to write a hate fan mail, like, or a hate mail, figure out where to send it and stamp it. And there was a lot more processing that had to go on where people understood what they were doing or had time to reflect on, I'm sending hate, here I go, you know, licking the envelope. Now it is, so, we are so accessible that within three seconds of having a thought or emotion that is negative about a tweet, People can write hatred about how they feel about you. You don't even need both hands. You could just like, me have thought, me must tweet, thumb. And I do think what you're saying is that process of deliberation and taking time and reflection and sitting down, articulating your thoughts, you know, putting the pen to paper, then putting that in an envelope. There is enough time there that you think, I'm over it. Maybe I'll go have a Coke. But the second you asked a question about like, why are people doing this? I think the second aspect to that is they have permission. Alyssa, when the president of the United States, the 45th president, Donald Trump, is openly saying, I think Islam hates us. The Mexicans are rapists and criminals. Go back to your country, the squad. And there's permission. My president is allowing me to air all of my quote unquote politically incorrect thoughts. I will not be penalized. I will not be punished. I will be celebrated. He told me to stand back and stand by. He didn't condemn white supremacy. It's go time. And the difference now, and I'm sure you're getting this also, back in the day, back in the day, they used to come out with like anonymous names, but now people just use their full names and emails with me. No shame. The pressures of the present, particularly with social media and the pandemic, have been particularly harmful to teenage girls. To look at this crisis and what we can do about it, we've invited Donna Jackson Nakazawa on the show to discuss her book, Girls on the Brink, helping our daughters thrive in an era of increased anxiety, depression, and social media. How do we dial down on the chronic, unpredictable stress in girls' lives? And that, I think, is very empowering. It's tough to be a teenager. It's especially tough for girls who are more vulnerable to depression than boys. New research shows that's getting even worse. Basic epidemiology has told us for a long time that after puberty, something switches and girls develop depression and anxiety and self-harm at much higher rates than boys. What about social media? 
How big of a part of your lives is social media? I love Very social media. Do you, any of you ever question your body because of what you see on social media? As in so focused on just like not eating past seven. Hi, I'm Donna Jackson Nakazawa. I'm an author and journalist. And I'm passionate about girls' mental health and sharing the latest neuroscience so we can help girls thrive in these challenging times. Sorry, not sorry. I guess the place that we should start then is maybe just tell us, give us the landscape of the state of mental health for girls in America. We have seen over the past decade that rates of depression and anxiety for girls are skyrocketing. Not only that, they're rising much faster among girls than they are among boys. Now, I just want to be clear, all of our kids are struggling. Look at the world we've given them. Why the heck wouldn't they be? But when we start to see these rates doubling and tripling for girls and not rising as rapidly for boys, we want to know why. So we want to get that basic understanding because anyone who loves a girl or raises a girl or helps a girl, which I hope is all of us, knows that girls are suffering in unprecedented numbers. Just to throw a few quick stats off the top of my head and in the book, which we'll talk about, I devoted three pages just to growing up female by the numbers. Because when you see these numbers, you can't look away. One third of girls by 17 now cite having experienced a depressive episode in the past year. I'm not just saying they don't feel good or feel moody. I'm talking about loss of interest in activities, not sleeping too much, not sleeping at all, feeling worthlessness, guilt. And we also know that girls have a depression rate that's 2.6 times higher than boys. Also know that all of this sets in at puberty. Suddenly, depression and anxiety start to take off for girls in a way that we don't see with boys. And over a recent span of time, the CDC just reported that the suicide rate, attempts of suicide, has risen 51% for our girls compared to 4% for boys. Now, I am the mother of a daughter and a son, and I love all children. But when we begin to see that, and what did I say I do? I take on gnarly problems. We have to ask why. And so I put my shoulder behind that wheel, if you will, and spent two years talking to the greatest experts in the world to ask them that question, get those answers, and also talk about what we can do about it. Now, before I end this very long answer to your short question, guess what I found right away? After having written several books in this bailiwick, which I described, all of my research, all of my books have been based on, guess what, a male research model. When we look at how stress affects the developing brain across childhood and puberty, the set point for well-being across the lifespan, we have been looking at male research models in preclinical research. So we have only started to look at the intersection of stress on the developing brain in female models in preclinical research. The purpose of clinical research is to help understand how the human body works and how health and disease come about. So we want to understand what makes good health. I think women's participation in clinical trials is extremely important because we are have an entirely different set of issues, whether whatever body system you're working with, it's different from a man and from a child. So there are certainly differences there that we need to understand and focus and realize that are specific to women. In 2016, when the NIH asked researchers to include this information, so it takes a few years for all that to come out. I was able to report on all of it, and the results are kind of mind-boggling. The sick thing about that is it's not 
Unfortunately, it is not unlike what we see in other areas of healthcare, right? We didn't understand the effects of cholesterol and heart implications because we were only studying male subjects. So, I mean, it's shocking, obviously, but it's not that shocking. There's a lot of questions I have. Let's just talk about, I mean, we can talk numbers, but how in the daily existence of boys versus girls or boys and girls, how did your findings differ? The most powerful moment where we begin to see this shift in the way that stress and adversity affect girls and boys is, as I said, in puberty. And what is different in puberty? We think of sex hormones coming in as being all about sex and getting revved up in that thrum of excitement. And yet they do a lot more than that. So estrogen comes in and it's actually a master regulator. It's a regulating hormone. So I don't know how nerdy your listeners are, but I'll keep this as simple as possible. Estrogen is the reason why a woman can do in adulthood and after puberty everything a guy can do in a smaller body, smaller organs, smaller heart, also making room for this thing called a uterus, right? It's the reason that we can do so much on less hardware, so to speak. And the reason for that is a great evolutionary trick because estrogen allows us to make this much bigger immune response when we are facing anything from an infection to lots of stressors. And the reason that it does that is because it's there to help guard the possibility of another life one day. So for instance, to be very specific, vaccines, women produce a bigger immune response to vaccines. We are able to run a marathon super fast and be able to do that same way a guy can do it because of estrogen. However, because estrogen gives you this extra womp, it also does something in the face of social stressors. And that means that at puberty, as estrogen comes in and begins to orchestrate a complete makeover of the brain when we have overwhelming social and environmental stressors and a girl is getting the sense that she's not safe and girls aren't safe and it happens early in this developmental process the brain works a little bit like a computer system takes into account all the stressors you face all of them in front of you that day and calculates, okay, what are the odds that I am growing up and going out into the world in a world that is safe for me or unsafe? And if the answer is unsafe, that reorchestration of the brain, that rewiring of the brain happens in a way that sets girls up for depression and anxiety. We don't see that in the same way with testosterone and with male puberty because A, we didn't study it because researchers wanted to keep those pesky hormones out of it. And B, estrogen has an advanced stress immune response that it pushes forth in the face of environmental stressors. We just learned this. One of the saddest parts of 2022 was the ongoing epidemic of gun violence. The shooting in Uvalde, Texas, reminded us once again of just how dangerous America has become because of guns. And in December, we observed the 10th anniversary of the Sandy Hook shooting. Positively, we did see the passage of the first significant gun violence legislation in about 30 years. One of the leaders of the negotiations for that bill, Senator Chris Murphy, joined Alyssa to discuss. Taking you now to Buffalo, New York, where police officials are discussing a mass shooting that happened in a supermarket. CBS News has confirmed 
At least 10 people are dead. More are injured. Tonight, people not only in Texas, but across the country are heartbroken after at least 19 children and at least two adults were gunned down in an elementary school in Uvalde. Senator Chris Murphy uh, is speaking on the Senate floor. Let's listen. The living stepping over their classmates' bodies as they tried to flee the school. What's being touted as the most significant deal on new gun legislation in decades could be on the president's desk in weeks. That's the GOP's lead negotiator. I think there's a desire to get this thing done sooner rather than later. Now, the last time Congress passed significant gun violence legislation was in the 1990s. In the meantime, more than a million people have been killed by guns in America, probably more than two million have been injured by guns in America. I don't understand. Why is it so hard to do anything? What are the obstacles to getting just something done? The gun lobby in the United States is incredibly powerful. There's no other corollary like it in any other nation. And they have intertwined themselves with the conservative movement in a really interesting way. Right now, if you're a Republican candidate, Maybe the most important endorsement that will often matter to you is the endorsement of the gun lobby, because that endorsement from gun groups serves as a broader proxy for your conservative values, right? You're standing up against liberals trying to take away guns, then you're signaling what a strong conservative you are. That has prevented us from taking action. But over the course of the last 10 years, we have been building up this movement, this anti-gun violence movement, which now has more members than the gun lobby does. We have more money and we have the public on our side. So, you know, why we saw this time around Republicans coming to the table is primarily because there is enormous political benefit in landing where 80% of your constituents are who want stronger gun laws. And we now have the political movement necessary to carry that majority of Americans to elections and to the ballot box. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So let's talk about the historic framework that you've put together. What is in the framework? I know that a lot of people first approach this framework through a prism of what's not in it. And I understand this is not a bill that has a ban on assault weapons. It's not a bill that has universal background checks. But there are five changes in U.S. gun laws in this bill. All of them will save lives. I would argue thousands of lives. First, we're going to help states pass red flag laws. These are laws that allow courts to take away temporarily guns from people who are threatening suicide or threatening a mass shooting. And these laws have proven to be incredibly successful in saving lives. Officials call the laws extreme risk protection orders, otherwise known as red flag laws. What they do in general terms is relatively simple. Police or a family member can ask a judge to order a temporary removal of weapons from someone who represents a danger to themselves or others. Second, we are going to close what's called the boyfriend loophole. This is a big loophole in American law where if you are convicted of beating up your girlfriend, you can still buy a gun. You have a restraining order against you because you are a threat to your girlfriend. You can still buy a gun. We're going to close that loophole. Third, we treat under 21-year-old buyers a little different. I would love to just raise the age to buy a weapon to 21. We don't have the votes for that. So we're going to have an enhanced background check for anybody under 21 that will likely take a few days. So it'll be a kind of de facto waiting period, a pause on these sales. That's important because sometimes these young people are in crisis, like the shooter in Uvalde, and it gives a little time to cool down. And then the last two changes, we're going to have the first ever criminalization of straw purchasing. 
We're going to increase penalties for gun trafficking. That's going to allow us to stop some of the flow of illegal weapons into our cities. And then we're going to update and clarify the definition of a licensed gun dealer to make sure that the people out there who really are commercial sellers of guns are all licensed. Because if you're licensed, you have to do background checks. And we want to make sure that anybody that's in the repeated business of selling guns commercially has to do background checks. Those are four, five big changes. They're going to save a lot of lives. And then on top of that, we're going to spend billions of dollars in new mental health investments, opening up new you know, clinics all across the country, school-based clinics. We're going to make a huge down payment to fix our mental health crisis in the nation, and that will make a big difference as well. The agreement in principle would include financial support for states to create or administer red flag laws to temporarily remove guns from individuals deemed to be a threat, expanded investments in mental health, school safety, and enhanced background checks for gun buyers. I'm curious about how the framework translates into legislation and whether, you know, the framework will hold together through that process. I think it will. The heavy lifting was putting that framework together. There's a decent amount of detail inside the document that we put out. And my belief is that everybody who's part of these negotiations is committed to putting that framework into legislative text. I know there's a worry that Republicans are never going to sort of get to that final step, right? This step of passage that they're always willing to engage in conversations, but they're not willing to actually vote for these kind of changes, especially since some of the biggest gun rights groups in the country have already come out against our framework. I think this time is different. I think the American public have made it really clear to Republicans and Democrats in the Senate that doing nothing is not an option. And so I don't sense any let up in the seriousness of people that I've been negotiating with to get this to the finish line. The mental health crisis in America has led to some innovative searches for solutions. Among the most promising are new uses for psychedelics. Celebrated author Michael Pollan, writer of the new book How to Change Your Mind, joined Alyssa to discuss. Could psychedelics be a viable treatment for ADHD? Like countless other people, I believe that psychedelics have played a huge role in my mental and emotional well-being. After this moral panic that hits the culture around 1965, um, nobody studies it anymore. I suffer from a form of a seasonal affected mood disorder. Basically, when the weather's outside, I would feel down. So if it was cloudy, miserable, rainy, I just don't really get enough light, and there's a form of depression that develops because of that. And when you start taking psychedelic mushrooms, at least when I started, um, it was one of the most life-changing experiences I have ever had. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I rise in support of Amendment 23 to create a grant program for psychedelic treatment for PTSD. That may come as a shock to many, and I say good, because to be frank, we need new ideas because it seems we are losing the battle with veteran suicide. Hi, I'm Michael Pollan. I'm a writer, a journalist, and I am passionate about two things. One is about reforming the food system and improving the American diet, and the other is about fighting for recognition of the potential of psychedelics to help treat mental illness. Sorry, not sorry. I want to talk about MDMA. This compound was, it was an accident created by a pharmaceutical company and then ignored. And decades later, a chemist went back in and synthesized it. Sasha Shulgin, yes, who was a great psychedelic chemist, lives near me here in the Bay Area, did. I mean, he's died and his wife just died actually a couple of weeks ago. And she was a partner in uh, the invention, the creation of many compounds, new compounds. But probably their biggest accomplishment was discovering MDMA as a therapeutic agent because it had been invented. I forget the original purpose Merck had for it. They put it on the shelf. They never did anything with it. And then Sasha Shulgin in the early 70s, I think it was, resynthesized it and tried it as he would with all these compounds he made. And his wife was a therapist and she tried it and she said, this compound can be very useful in psychotherapy. It is not a classic psychedelic. You do not have hallucinations typically on it, but it does some very interesting things that contribute to therapy. It lowers your activity in your amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, which allows you to approach very difficult memories without fear and that you can take them out and look at them with this incredible clinical coolness that is very helpful in therapy. 
it also leads to an almost instantaneous bond between you and the therapist. There is this release of oxytocin that accompanies MDMA. This is you know, the so-called love chemical. It's what's released between nursing mothers and their babies, and it's released during sex, and it just binds people together. It's a very powerful connection chemical. And that is released during MDMA, and that leads to this powerful transference with the therapist. And the therapist will say, this is like 10 years of therapy in an afternoon in terms of the progress made building trust. Now, that trust can be abused. There's a vulnerability involved in that. And there are some unscrupulous therapists who have abused that trust. It's important to understand that you have to choose a therapist very carefully. But the result is that MDMA has proven a very effective treatment for trauma, PTSD, because people can deal with their trauma in the therapeutic setting, re-experience it with less charge than they had. It used to be that every time these memories came up, they were just so full of fear and anger and uh, powerful emotions that they really couldn't deal with them. So it allows you to deal with difficult material. I think the future of MDMA is going to be as a couples therapy agent because it allows two people to talk about the most difficult subjects imaginable without getting defensive and openly and fearlessly. And that's really important in a relationship. There's also an emerging trend, at least emerging from my perspective, it might not be emerging, of people microdosing psychedelics. Can you talk a little bit about this? What is it? How does it work? Why might it be? And for who might it be beneficial for? Yeah. So microdosing is the practice of taking a tiny dose of a psychedelic, like 10% of a normal dose, 10 to 20%. Studies have shown psychedelic mushrooms can treat or even cure depression, and some San Diego moms are turning to it for help. It's called microdosing. It's not legal, but a North County mom admits she does it, and it works. And that it's such a little amount that you shouldn't really feel it. Uh, it shouldn't, you shouldn't feel like you're tripping in any way. If you are, you're taking too much. And people do this on a regime. They'll do one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off. And many people report benefits in terms of depression, productivity, creativity. They just feel better. There's not a lot of research on microdosing. It's surprisingly difficult to do, but we haven't done the kind of double-blind controlled studies where we could really determine for sure that it's not a placebo effect. It may well be a placebo effect. Placebos are very strong in general. If I give you a sugar pill and say, this is going to help with your anxiety, it will help with your anxiety to some extent. If I give you a little bit of LSD and say, this is going to help with your anxiety, we attribute so much magic to that molecule that it's going to have a powerful placebo effect. So that may be all that's going on. We just don't know yet for sure. Does it the chemical break down similar to an SSRI? No, I mean, it does influence the same receptors. There is serotonin receptors in the brain, the 5-2-A receptor. And that is the one that serotonin locks into and LSD and psilocybin, which chemically are similar to serotonin and not to mention mescaline, fits into that receptor and activates it. So that sounds like an explanation for how it works. It isn't completely like, why should serotonin do something so different than what LSD does if they're involving the same receptor? There's some cascade of events after the receptor has been activated that produces the psychedelic experience. And that we don't understand. And that's research, really interesting research. In fact, here at Berkeley, we um, co-founded a psychedelic research center at Berkeley. And we want to look at some of these questions of basic science of how does it work? because we haven't unfurled that mystery yet. And you personally use the compounds in the Netflix show, How to Change Your Mind, which I strongly recommend everybody watch. 
I was careful not to break the law on camera. I mean, that's really asking for trouble. But I did describe my experiences and I did have a series of psychedelic experiences, some of them guided, some not, in the book on which the Netflix series is based, How to Change Your Mind. So I had several psilocybin experiences, one LSD experience, MDMA, something called 5-MeO-DMT, which is um, very obscure psychedelic that's made from the venom of the Sonoran desert toad. Yes. Who figured that out? Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. How would, do you drink that? No, you smoke it. That's the other thing. Somebody had to figure out that it's best. It's toxic. If you just consumed, it's toxic. But if you smoke it, the bad compounds go away. It's very powerful. I found it really destabilizing. The best thing about it was it only lasted about 10 minutes, but I'm not inclined to do that one again. How did these experiences change you? Is there a Michael that was very different pre these experiences versus who you are as a person now, what you've learned about yourself? You know, I didn't go into this, these experiences trying to fix something specific. Like I wanted to lose this quality or for me, it was curiosity. I wanted to learn something about my mind. I also wanted it. I was doing it honestly for my readers. So I could describe this from the inside. But it did change me in interesting ways. I talked earlier about my relationship to my ego. I think that has been permanently shifted. I am less of a slave to my ego than I was. And that I'm very grateful for. It has given me a lot of gratitude in my life. It has made me appreciate love as the most important thing, more important than money, more important than achievement and success. Now, that's a kind of banal observation, but to really feel it and act on it is a pretty big deal. Some of what we learn on psychedelics is they're object lessons in the obvious sometimes, but sometimes the obvious is precisely what we've lost track of in our lives. So you have these experiences where you return with insights that could be written on a Hallmark card, but just because they're banal doesn't mean they're not also profound. And that's certainly true about love and gratitude and awe, which you spoke about earlier. I think awe is such an important human emotion. And finally, we'll look back at this moment from Alyssa's discussion with Will Wheaton. Will's an actor known for Stand By Me, Star Trek, The Big Bang Theory, and other credits, and has released his new book, Still Just a Geek, in 2022. Hello, Internet. You know what your day needs? me reading you some spam comments that have been left on my blog. My name is Will Wheaton. I am an actor, writer, and producer. I have generalized anxiety disorder, and I have uh, some, I, I forget the exact medical term for it, but it's sort of like chronic depression. Will Wheaton may play Will Wheaton on Big Bang Theory, but his real life personality is nothing like his character. I am on the set of Star Trek Picard, to be Wesley Crusher, who is now a full-fledged traveler for the first time in three. My name is Will Wheaton. I am an author, an entertainer, a mental health advocate, and a trauma survivor. Sorry, not sorry. Not to belittle any of the work you've put in personally, but you did marry one of the best people on the planet. I absolutely did. And I would love for you to just tell my listeners about you and Anne and your relationship and what a special person she is, because I think it really is a great explanation of how love can fill your life in a way that it doesn't distract from being a complete person, but it's additive to finding who that complete person is. Hello, friends. My name is Anne Wheaton. Last year, I created a rescue pet calendar featuring some well-known people with their rescue pets. And I had so much fun doing it that I wanted to create a new one. So it features all new people, except these people. They were in it last year, but the cats weren't in it. So they're new. And then everyone else inside is new too. Anne is the other half of my heartbeat. And if someone listening to this is lucky enough to have a person who's the other half of their heartbeat, they immediately know what I mean when I say that. We met when I was 23 and I fell for her almost immediately. I knew that she was divorced. I knew that she had two kids and I didn't care. I thought she was incredible. I thought her kids were incredible. And for the first time in my like romantic life, which was stunted just because I was in the industry. I met a person who saw me, 
who didn't care about what I did for a job, who didn't care about what I had done for a job. She didn't even know that I had been an actor. She knew that I was friends with our mutual friend, Stephanie. And we started dating at a time where neither one of us wanted to date. It's such a when Harry met Sally end of the movie sitting on the couch story (laughs) of how like we went on double dates with our friends so we could pretend that we weren't actually dating. But eventually we fell in love with each other and we moved in together and then we raised kids together. We've been married for this year is going to be 23 years. And she's been with me at every step of my journey. When I started my blog, it's because I was just struggling like crazy as an actor and didn't know what to do. And I couldn't get cast and I couldn't get callbacks. And just, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to support the family I was hoping to build. And I had always wanted to write and I had always liked telling stories, but I never had the opportunity for like formal education And she really supported me just learning in real time in public how to do all of that stuff. She supported me when I was like, I would get an audition and I would look at it and say, I'm 100% wrong for this. I'm not driving to Santa Monica at four o'clock on a Friday. I'm just not going to do it. And she was really supportive of all of that at a time when I still had contact with my mother and she was losing her mind at me. Like, why are you passing on auditions? Because I'm not right for it. I don't want to go put myself through that. I would rather stay home and like work on the story that I'm doing. Probably the biggest, most important thing and contributed to my life was helping me make the choice to quit drinking. I spent about 10 years just being a drunk because I was in so much pain. And I spent 10 years being really aware of how much enmity my father had for me and just struggling to not accept it and holding out hope that if I just touched the buttons in exactly the right configuration, somehow it was going to change everything. And I was going to have supportive parents who loved me unconditionally. That wasn't happening. And I became a drunk to deal with that. And there was a point where she was like, I am concerned about you. I think you're killing yourself. And I was like, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I need help. And the next day, and that was the last time I ever drank. And the next day I started getting help for that. And she stood with me and supported me through all of it, has accepted me for who I am and has always seen the parts of me that I just always wished people would see. And we're partners During the pandemic, during the worst of the pandemic, we had black mold because things aren't bad enough. We had black mold in the kitchen. We had to have everything torn out and everything all put back in. And it was really rough. And it was just every day was another fucking thing. And this went on for months. And every day, one of us would say, just want to take a moment to acknowledge that we married the right person. We know that we married the right person because we're getting through all of this and all of these things together. And also in a practical way, I'm a barely competent adult. I'm an artist. I'm I'm always deep in my head. I'm always working on something creative. If it were left to me, no bills would ever be paid because I just wouldn't do it. I'd forget when I try to sit down and do those things. I get overwhelmed and I freeze up and panic. Anne is the adult in our marriage. Anne handles all of those things. David is that for me, too, for all the same reasons. Like, I'm just I would rather dream a dream than to sit down and actually have to deal with just logistics or scheduling or bills or anything like that. There's a chapter in your book where you and Anne and your kids are about to go on a family vacation and you get this call from your agent about some potential auditions at a time when the phone hadn't been ringing too much, and you were put in this position of choosing family or acting. It's really a powerful chapter, and I wonder if you would just talk about it a little bit. It was a really difficult moment. We So we were super broke, and we were like, our life was balancing the checkbook account to a penny so that we're not overdrawn. And I know that doesn't make us special. I know a lot of people deal with that, but it was also really new for me and I didn't know what to do about it. And one of the things that we would do so that we could have good, joyful, away memories with the kids, we had friends who lived in Lake Tahoe who owned a cabin. They would let us go stay there without charging us rent or anything. So we'd drive up there and spend the time with the kids and we'd take our dog and it was great. And as you said, we were getting ready to go on a trip. Like the car was packed. And my manager called me and was like, you have auditions Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, or like it was like just all of this stuff all coming up all at one time. And 
I didn't want to go do any of them because we had a family vacation planned. Like we were literally about to leave. And I felt like at this real crossroads, there were all of these competing things happening in me. And there were two like forces really fighting with each other. One was the me that just wanted to be a husband and a dad and spend time with my kids. And then there was this other part of me that felt like here's an opportunity to support the family to earn money that we desperately need, but also to have this, like maybe one of these projects is like the one. That's how they keep you coming back. That's exactly how they keep you coming back. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So I stayed home. My stuff comes out of the car. The kids are upset. Anne's upset. I'm upset. And the auditions are awful. They're a disaster. I go into the first audition on that Monday morning and they're terrible to me. They had th- that thing where they had me prepare like a number of scenes and halfway through the first scene, they're like, OK, thanks. Why did you have me prepare five scenes if you're having me do half a scene? Because you made the decision when I walked into the room that I was wrong for the part. That's fine. I wish they would just say, oh, no, thank you. Or, hey, listen, you're not right for this, but maybe this other piece, whatever. Anyway, I leave. And they treated me terribly, too. It's a thing casting does. Casting treats some people better than other people. And I think that it is a consequence of them being overworked and just choosing where they're going to put that focus and time and all that stuff. Casting was terrible to me. Went to the audition the next day, same thing. Awful. Just catastrophic, disaster, terrible. And I was pissed. I was like, I, this is exactly what I knew was going to happen. I knew that I wasn't going to book the jobs. I knew that I was going back to like an abusive relationship. It's the cycle of abuse. And I, when I went into the last time and I was just, and I just thought, and listen, honestly, a big part of me was also like, oh my God, the shit I'm going to have to deal with from my mom, even though I'm like almost 30, the shit I'm going to have to deal with from my mom when I tell her, yeah, I passed on auditions to take a trip with my family. Rather than being supportive and telling me, man, you got to do what's best for your family and do what's best for you. I never got that kind of support from either of my parents. It would have been, what are you doing? What about your career? Translated into, what are you doing? What about the access I used to have that I don't have anymore because you're not famous? I want that access. And when the kids and the end came home, I was like, I'm never doing this again. This is the end. I'm done. I'm, I am never putting the question mark of the what if career thing in front of the absolute, I know what I want to do for myself and my family. And that was a really significant moment for me of really making a choice to just, it still took 15 years, but that was the moment when I decided this isn't what I want to do. Thank you all so much for listening with us for almost 200 episodes. Did you have a favorite moment from this year that we missed? Let us know. Visit us at anchor.fm and leave us a voicemail. From Alyssa, me, and all of us here at Sorry Not Sorry, we're wishing you a happy 2023 with peace and justice for all. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.